You're listening to Lighten Up with the Declutterista, and I'm your host, Becky Bass, the Declutterista. I'm all about having fun with mom life, decluttering, and interviewing inspiring guests. I am wearing earphones right now. I wanted to see what it felt like. It looks cool for the pictures, but it was a little bit weird, but I think I like it. Um, So I want to talk about a very important topic going to, I was going to say going to the dump, but it's actually a transfer station. So I wanted to research kind of the differences, um, but I don't know. So one of the services that I offer is to help haul away um, junk and things that can't be recycled, can't be donated. And so recently I went to a dump twice or transfer station twice in one day. Um, it's quite an experience. I've, I've gone to some conferences and, um, you know, heard a lot about how, you know, women, the inequality, inequality between men and women. And I don't know if I'm in denial or it's just my circumstances of, um, growing up, I had a lot of friends that were girls and I went to an all women's college and I worked in a primarily female field of fundraising at hospitals. So I haven't really felt it, but I definitely feel the difference when I go to the transfer station. I feel like such a kind of silly girl um, in my minivan. There's, you know, the construction workers. For some reason, U-Haul people have trash. I guess if they already have this service. They use their van for trash. I don't know what's going on with that. But um, I just feel very out of my element. And it's kind of exciting. And it's just very disorienting. There's these huge piles of different sorts of trash. There's a scale. Um, And I don't go that often. So I don't feel like I have the rhythm down. But every time there's like something new and awkward that happens. So I went the other day and the first time I was like, okay, I'm going to go on the scale. I'm following directions to weigh, you weigh the car to see how much stuff. So I weighed it. I'm like, yeah, I got this. I kind of know where to go because before I was kind of driving around. It looks like Terminator, Apocalypse, whatever. It just looks like a different world. Um, And so I'm driving around. I feel like I have the right pile that I'm going to back my car into. But I don't like to back up my car. It makes me very nervous. I don't, even though I have a backup camera, I don't like people directing me which way to turn the wheel. That flusters me. I don't know if other people have this issue, but it's very, I don't like to back up. I don't back up into a space. Whenever I, even if I'm like going to go declutter someone in their garage, I will kind of walk around sometimes. I just don't like it. But um, the people are directing me which pile. I almost went to the metal pile, but, um, and there's like, oh, I should know the terminology now, but there's, um, it's not a big digger, but that sort of thing that's squishing the trash. Um, there's always that. So that's like a little overwhelming. And usually the guy in there is nice. So these other people were telling me I need to back up into that pile, not the metal pile. Um, and I'm just like, no, I'm good. I thought they were just doing that to be helpful. Like, oh, you probably want to back up. That logically makes sense if you have stuff in your trunk. But I was like, nah, I'm good. But then he was somehow he was saying you have to. So I'm like, oh, God, okay, I'll do this. Unloaded my trash, loving it. And another thing you don't have to, you don't have to like toss it. You don't have to like go crazy because the guy's going to squish it. Okay. And people are kind of, some people are amused. You could tell they have this look like, oh, this is how you do it. Like you silly lady. What are you doing? You silly soccer mom. Um, and But they're nice. They're like a nice amused. And other people are just like kind of looking at you like, I don't even know what's going on with this lady. So you don't have to haul the stuff, but it kind of feels good just to toss it like and make like noises, like grunting noises. Um, you know, but they're like, you don't have to. You could, he squishes it anyway. And um, so then I'm like, I got this. I even know which way to exit because there's trash everywhere, like these ginormous piles. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go pay. And then the guy... One of the guys who was next to me taking trash out, he's like, you have to weigh in again. I totally forgot that you have to weigh the car after. Oy. So then I finally did that. And then I go in to pay. And he's like, oh, um, I'm." Te- he's like looking at me. And I'm like, it's pretty obvious. Like I weighed in. I said, I weighed in. Then I emptied it out. And I weighed in again. He's like, oh, I didn't see you. I didn't give you the thumbs up of the way. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Anyway, it didn't matter. But basically, I think you can $60 for like maybe – is it 10,000 pounds of trash? Obviously, my minivan, I didn't, it wasn't extra. So it was the $60. So then I go back a different time. I'm like, okay, I got this in the same day. Um, I go through all the motions. What did I do wrong that time? Oh, oh, my backing up was so awkward. The guy in the big giant construction vehicle who squishes the trash was like, do you want me just to do it? 
you know, so he's backing up my car. So it's just like kind of mortifying, kind of like what's going to happen. But I don't know if I should just kind of I'm kind of playing into the silly like, oh, I make a mistake every time. Ha ha ha. Um, so I don't know if I need like a transfer station alter ego, like I'm awesome. I blend in here, but I constantly like tease myself in front of people. So it's kind of interesting. Um, it's just the, the things that I choose to do. Like someone canceled a meeting that I was supposed to drive to Somerville to have like a business meeting. And I'm like, oh, cool. I can go to the, the, tra- the dump for another, uh, or the transfer station. So that's my exciting mom life. I think it's a little bit different than other people's, but it does feel good for clients. And um, I do enjoy it. And I think I'm learning the ropes. Um, and maybe I'm going to become like one of the guys. So that's my uh, experience. And also in terms of my decluttering tip... There's a lot of like invisible load. I don't know if I've talked about this before. My husband jokes about it um, where these all these uh, things, if you're a mom or stay at home parent or just mom, working mom, let's say dad, I kind of think that oftentimes the invisible load um, falls on the women, um, but no one hurt me based on that comment. Uh, Don't be mad at me. Um, So basically all these things that people don't realize you're thinking about and juggling and constantly thinking about. um, And what's on that list for me, and I was talking to my sister about it, and she gets it too, library books. Oh, my God. Trying to return library books. And then there's library books from the public library. There's library books from the school. And then there's certain days. There's like a a buddy book that I have to run on Friday. And then it's like – and I know it's going to get more intense or maybe not because when they get older, they're supposed to be responsible. And then there's – we're doing karate. So then you have to bring your belt. Uh, But because I go to the dump, sometimes I'm moving – like I was keeping the karate belt – thing in the car but then when you go to the dump you kind of have to take bags out so and I think they were going to get their stripe if we brought the belt so then I'm getting in trouble and then at karate you also can bring quarters and then you get to punch this thing and I don't have quarters so there's always something um and I'm kind of getting blamed for things so I'm like you know what guys it's not my fault you need to be responsible for it but then I have to figure out to help them how to be responsible. I have to develop the systems. Wah, wah, wah. So, and then my daughter before bed was was like, um, you know, you keep te- you got to let me do things on my own. I'm like, okay, like we just got to do this. So, cleaning person came. I had a, a more of a clear mind. I'd gone to the dump a few times, so I just developed this list. And I've I've tried many different systems for like a few days and then gone off, but. I created a list for my kids. Okay, here are all the things you need to do in the morning. And then after you do them, whoever does them first, which is a little off because you don't want to rush breakfast. uh, But I told you don't rush breakfast. Um, So the list was like, try very simple, like room, um, like room, brush your teeth or just teeth, like because they say just fewer words, the better for kids because they tune you out. Um, What else? Room, like put things away, teeth. Backpack is a big one because I was kind of managing all the things that have to go in the backpack, but like to try to give them the responsibility, like, do you have your homework? Do you have your library book? Do you have your water? Like, I, I'm going to make the lunch, but like, do you have all the contents? Like, my son has to have a nap time towel that I'm screwing up this week. So he's kind of responsible for all the things that need to go in there. Um So after you finish your list and you kind of work together because my son can't fully read yet. um, you get to pick – both kids get to pick an activity for 20 minutes. So like my daughter can say, I want to play school and everyone has to play, including mommy. And then my son, he wanted to play engineer, which meant hammer and nails at 6.30 a.m. So no wonder I'm fried. Um, so whoever you get to pick your activity first. And that makes me feel like a better mom because I constantly have mom guilt that I'm doing all these things around them and not giving them attention. So if I each give them if I give them like 20 minutes each to do their thing and to try to focus on them, um, then it relieves it makes me feel like I'm at my best for them. And then they're also doing stuff around the house. And I'm not constantly whining like I do everything myself. So that is my declutter your mind, declutter your library book drama, karate belt. Um, I mean, I think it's probably good at this age, like kindergarten, first grade. Um, and then I feel like, I, I don't know, parents are always worried that their kid's not going to have their homework. Or, you know, I'm thinking like in, I've heard parents that go drop off the homework or they drop off this. 
um, so the kids don't have to face the consequences. But I'm wondering if I'm going to, you know, try to let the kids face the consequence of not having the homework turned in and let them realize what it's like to screw something up. You know, it's not the end of the world and then give them the responsibility, I wonder. But um, it's definitely going to take some practice on on both sides. So that is my decluttering tip. Hi, I'm really excited to have my guest here today, Jotham Busfield. He's a licensed independent clinical social worker with an office in Newton, Massachusetts. His practice focuses on supporting young men between the ages of 8 and 25 as they navigate a range of challenges, including anxiety and depression. During this formative time when many individuals may struggle with self-esteem, identity, and relationships, Jotham is passionate about empowering his clients to lead their lives with confidence and feel more connected to themselves and their peers. And your business is actually called Riser and Tread. Tread. Yep. <laughs> oh my God, practice that tread. so much. Yep. Okay. So where did this name come from? Because obviously I'm having having a hard time with it and I said yeah, Tread. Yeah, it's, it's a unique name. And I think cool. that was great because the website was available, right? Which is always a, an important thing. And I think, um, you know, why we named it that, a couple things. I think we like to use metaphor and analogy in our work with young guys uh, to put things you know, therapeutic terms in in words that they understand in the language that they speak. So that's a big part of the work that we do is using the power of metaphor and analogy. And I think, uh, you know, the the concept of a staircase is very, very much something that we use, right, about mm. stepping up, moving forward. Our slogan is helping young guys to step up and move forward. And so as a uh, sort of an element in our work, we kind of use the, the concept of a staircase as a way to kind of push through adversity in life and c- continue climbing up and moving forward. Um, so that was one reason. We also didn't want to uh, we wanted to name it something that was more in line with with the type of uh, approach we take to the work, um, which is a little bit unique and and not typical. And so, you know, ca- calling it something like Newton Counseling uh, Associates just mm. didn't really seem to fit. And we wanted a name that captured uh, how we're unique in the work that we do, as well as uh, something that we could grow into as we expand as a business. Great. Yeah. So what makes you unique exactly? I think uh, our focus on work with young guys is one thing. I th- I'm not sure, we haven't found really anyone else that, that strictly focuses on working with young guys. That's our area of expertise, uh, and we really try to focus on that. Um, and I think our overlap between coaching and therapy is definitely unique as well. You know, we try to um, combine the two a little bit. Um, and I, we think for young guys that works especially well because it doesn't feel like a therapy session. It's much more enthusiastic. It's usually much more active if we can find a way to make it active. Um, and so I think that that's, that's what makes us stand out a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. But you have an interesting background. You actually started off as an architect. Yeah. Yeah. So my first career was in architecture and I worked in that field for about a year after, you know, you get a five year degree and then you work in the field. I worked in the field for about a year, year and a half and decided, uh, for a combination of reasons, wasn't what was going to make me happy. Um, it was also around the time of, uh, you know, huge financial, uh, crash in the country around 2008. Uh, so that played a role too. Jobs were really hard to find. Um, and ultimately talking to the people that I went to school with um, based on the work they were doing, I didn't think it was going to make me happy. I got into architecture because I was fascinated with how design influences people and their and their subjective experiences and their emotions. And so eventually uh, I realized that it wasn't really just that that interested me. It was working with people on that stuff that really uh, moved me. And so that's what got me into volunteering and then eventually back into graduate school for clinical social work. What was the first, what was the volunteer jobs that you had that kind of got you into that? Yeah, I started in Boston um, working with um, at-risk youth who had dropped out of school, uh, dropped out of high school, and they were looking to get their GEDs or their diplomas um, through other means. So I would work with them in like a tutoring capacity. That was the first one. Okay. And then you decide to get your degree in social work. Yep. Then I went back to Boston University to get the, um, the MSW, Master's in Social Work, and after you get an MSW, you have to uh, get an LCSW, which is your first sort of license post-graduation. Uh, and then you have to work under an LICSW for two years, um, getting supervision uh, through your work with clients, um, getting supervision from the LICSW to then be able to take the, the, the test, the exam to get your own LICSW license, which you need to uh, independently run your own business uh, okay. and do therapy. Yeah. And you mentioned the podcast I was listening to, that it's not really 
encouraged to jump right into seeing your own, having your own business, having your own practice. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know if this is the case across other disciplines within the therapy world, like for psychologists or for uh, even licensed mental health counselors. But I think in social work school, which tends, you know, can have a clinical focus, but also a macro level focus on policy change and helping disadvantaged populations, the concept of private practice tends to be looked down upon a little bit, frowned upon uh, as if it's, uh, you know, solely out for the purpose of making money okay. uh, as opposed to just helping people. Uh, I, I personally believe that's a myth. I think there's there's a way to make money in a, a larger business plan, business idea that allows you to actually help and reach more people if you're doing it from the right place uh, in terms of your own attitude and, and purpose for getting into the field, which we do. So Awesome. Yeah. And there seems to be a huge demand here on your podcast that I listened to. Was it a couple of years old or it was it was a little old? You had like 40 clients and yeah, that is was it still about, just you? Or? That was about 10 months ago. Okay. Like that, that was a off. Bit, yep. um, maybe nine months ago. Yeah. So okay. that was um, at the time I was getting pretty busy already. Uh, I switched my office from Lexington to Newton. Uh, and then we've sort of expanded since. So I, I partnered up with a guy named John Cuna. It's spelled C-U-N-H-A, but it's pronounced Cuna. And he's a fantastic clinician um, that I've known for a couple of years. Uh, he's from the Lexington area. We partnered up because he did very similar work uh, working with young guys. He also um, is really into overlapping the the athletic component. So working with young athletes uh, around mindfulness-based training and, you know, um, just the, the, the mental toughness side of, of athletics and how they can kind of achieve the level of performance they want to achieve, uh, aside from just the physical component, really working on the mental side of that. Um, so we partnered up uh, and in about, I want to say, July, June or July of, of 2019 uh, to start Riser and Tread. And it's been going well ever since. We're, we're, we're growing the company. We've just hired a third and fourth oh, employee. Wow. And we're opening a third location. Right now, we have locations in Newton and Lexington, and we're opening a Concord office in January. Oh, my gosh. So you the know. first and only time I've met you, it's grown a ton. Yeah. It's 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 really been expanding pretty quickly. I think there's a, a lot of young guys out there struggling, and we pride ourselves on, on doing solutions-focused, goal-oriented work. Uh, it's not... Again, we talked earlier about how the feel of our therapy sessions is not really typical, and that also includes the timeline of our therapy sessions or, or our, our work with young guys. It's not open-ended like you just come to work with us for the rest of your life and, and, and it's once a week for uh, you know open-ended. It's very goal-oriented and very structured in terms of what we hope to accomplish in a short period of time to get them functioning and happy and successful in as, as little time as possible. And we get good results. And I think when people, when parents see that we get results quickly, they spread the word really fast. Most of our referrals come from word of mouth. So parents and young guys we've worked with before who have spread our names around because they're really happy with the outcomes. Um, and that's, I think, what's led to the growth pretty quickly. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, so you see eight to 25. Mm -hmm. So why that age range? Um, you know, I'm, my kids are in first grade and kindergarten. I'm starting to hear some parents that the kids are starting to have a diagnosis and mm -hmm. they're already hating school and they're having mm -hmm. problems with the teacher. And it's just, yeah. so, you know, what, did, what about the eight year old range? They're ready for coaching and therapy. Is that the well, I think you start to even in the 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 young guys we work with who are in the high school college range, or sometimes even a little bit past that, you 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 see that the, this stuff started, their struggles started around the you know seven, eight, nine, ten range, mm -hmm. typically on some level. I mean, what we see most common is is ADHD uh, around a young age, and if untreated or if not treated the right way, that can then lead to other things happening. Usually, the path we see is and this is kind of anecdotal; it's not necessarily based on any kind of research, but it's just what we've picked up on in all mm -hmm. of our work with young guys. It starts with ADHD and then if that's not solved in a good way pretty quickly or at least if it's not worked with so that they can really accept and kind of embrace that part of how their brain works, it can lead to anxiety pretty quickly. And then when anxiety starts happening, if that's allowed to exist for enough time, it can lead to depression. Uh, and hmm. If depression is allowed to exist, you, especially in guys, you see a lot of anger issues, you see a lot of substance abuse, mm. and, you, and then they go to college, and you know, substance abuse is a pretty huge problem in college. And so you see the um, the the seeds of these things really starting early. So we we've seen that in our work with guys in high school and college and beyond, uh, and that just motivates us even more to connect with them at a younger age to be able to stop that and really from a preventative kind of place um, be able to to work with them so that they don't have to go through those uh, later struggles. So if a, if a parent or a teacher starts to notice something at a young age, let's say second or third grade, what would, would the first step be to go to you or to get an advocate? It just seems like a whole range of... 
Yeah, I think accurate diagnosis is really important, especially like with something like ADHD. Um, it's misdiagnosed quite a bit. I mean, in general, our our culture is collectively less focused, uh, more scattered, more distracted. So that's part of it. Um, with the use of technology and cell phones, obviously, that's that's just made things even harder. So I think everyone across the board is a little bit more distracted than they used to be. Um, but also, ADHD tends to be misdiagnosed quite a bit because there are symptoms of depression that tend to mimic the inattentive side of ADHD. And there's symptoms of anxiety that tend to mimic the the, the hyperactivity side of, of ADHD that sometimes people experience. And then sleep deprivation is probably the biggest problem that I see where you work with a young guy and people think he, he has ADHD and it's really that he's been sleeping three hours a night um, due to other things or because he's you know glued to his phone um, and long-term sleep deprivation. The symptoms of that look just like ADHD. And so we try to really just focus on Let's get down to the bottom of what's actually happening. Let's track sleep using technology, using Fitbit, something like that, so we can really rule out stuff because diagnosis is really about being able to rule out other things so that you can concretely say, we think this is what's happening. And then once you know it's ADHD or ADHD is part of the overall kind of presenting problem that we're dealing with, uh, then we would approach that in a couple of ways. I think com as compared to depression and anxiety, ADHD um, medication, you know, and this is not medical advice by any means, but the, me the medication for ADHD is, you know, less risky when it comes to side effects and habit forming and that kind of thing. And it, it tends to be a very important part of the puzzle to, to help someone reduce the symptoms with ADHD. So we would connect them with someone if they weren't already connected, uh, a psychiatrist, someone who can handle the medication side and who is updated with the most recent uh, information research-wise on medication. And then we would actually work with them more from the behavioral side. I think we do cognitive behavioral work or CBT with mm -hmm. most of our clients in some capacity. I think ADHD tends to be a lot more on the behavioral side than the cognitive side, right? Because with depression and anxiety, there's a there's a, usually some maladaptive uh, cognitions that people are having. Um, thoughts about the world, thoughts about their future, thoughts about themselves that tend to be very negative. Um, and those, those serve as filters that drive a lot of the depressive symptoms and the anxious symptoms. With ADHD, it's not as much of a, a subjective cognitive process that's that's getting in the way. It's really a neurological change mm -hmm. in how their brain works mm -hmm. compared to some other people's brains. Um, so there's there's less of the cognitive work that we do with someone with ADHD, much more of the behavioral changes because, again, we're looking at what puts a, a young guy in harm's way when it comes to the uh, the risk of those symptoms of ADHD, ADHD getting worse. Nutrition plays a role. Sleep plays a huge role. Use of screens and technology mm. plays a huge role. Um, habit forming, organization, things like that. And so that's what we tend to focus on. Um, and a lot of that work is with parents. Um, at, least, at least half of it overlaps with parents to help coach them to say from a parenting side, how can you establish the habits and routines that are going to best support your son to minimize these symptoms? as well as how can you accept that this is part of how his brain his brain's always mm -hmm. going to work. Mm -hmm. I mean, some uh, having ADHD is not a uh, an indictment on the person's character. If anything, it's got some really great qualities to it. They tend to be dreamers. They tend to be creative. Uh, they tend to be able to uh, capable of doing quite amazing things. And they tend to be very intelligent when they have ADHD. So it's just a matter of their brains working differently. And the, the formalized school uh, environment doesn't isn't always conducive to that type of brain, but that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. And so that's what's so important because the parents need to know that so that they can be calm in how they deal with their son, and their son needs to know that so that he doesn't start to think negatively about himself. Mm -hmm. Because if he starts to think negatively, that's that's what starts those cognitions I was talking about that plants the seeds for anxiety and depression later on. Uh, so it's why that's why it's so important with ADHD to really attack it early, but in the right way. So what are the, what are some signs of it? I mean, there's the hyperactivity. Um, what, are, what are some other signs? Yeah. So um, like diagnostically it used to be separated. AD, ADD was here and then ADHD was its own thing. Now they've kind of just combined it into one ADHD term with two subtypes. One is wow. inattentiveness and one is hyperactivity. So those are the two main things. Um, you know, inattentiveness is you know, heightened distractibility. Uh, difficult time focusing, sort of uh, switching from subject to subject very quickly, not being able to continue with thought. But again, that's sometimes that's the creativity uh, piece of how their brain works. And the hyperactivity is is sort of, you know, high levels of energy, really mm -hmm. tough to sit still. And again, that's why a classroom can be tough. If they're asked to sit in a chair and just, you know, face forward the entire time for a long period of time, that's really hard. They tend to benefit a lot more from something very active. And again, that's what our sessions tend to be active because that's what gets 
gets them uh, to a much more calm place. They need a release of that physical sort of uh, hyperactivity um, to get to a place where they're able to pay attention. And so a lot of what we do is we try to prime them for learning in that way. And even in sessions, you know, we'll start the session with something more more mobile, right? We'll either shoot hoops inside the office, we'll go out for a walk, we'll do something that's just going to get their their heart rate up a little bit. And then the learning component of the session happens after that. And, and schools need to really do the same thing. And this is what's a problem is that I think I think the school setup has never been more, um, you know, disadvantageous to someone with ADHD because they're getting rid of all the active components. You know, research is being re- um, recess is being reduced more and more. Um, there's less time for them to take breaks and get up and walk around. Uh, if anything, teachers are more strict about that. They don't want any kids getting up or doing anything moving around. So at least that's what the feedback we've heard from parents and from kids. And that's really tough because they need that. They need the ability to move around to get that out so that they're primed to be able to focus. Well, my experience so far, kindergarten and first grade, and it seems like they're they're moving towards what you're envisioning mm-hmm. is there's multiple types of seating, yep. which is great. Yep. Recess is short. They have tons of movement breaks. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of Go Noodle? No. Yeah, Go Noodle. I walked into my daughter's class when she was in kindergarten and I was going to be a mystery reader. And I see all the kids doing Zumba, but they were so like, they were just, they were so serious Mm -hmm. about it. I thought it was the funniest thing, but they were like little robots, like shaking their hips. And I I don't know, I think my, when I went to the um, open house, the teacher said like seven movement breaks. That's great. Isn't that awesome? So I don't know if I'm, we're just lucky teacher wise. Um, And my daughter's teacher this year, she said, you know, if the kids want to have a snack, she has a special Mm -hmm. needs background. And now she's in regular, you know, quote, regular first yep. grade. And she, with their, their needs are met, like she kind of understands like yeah. that. So um, what age is this? This is kindergarten and first grade. Okay. So I think, Changes. I hope more schools take that on. Yeah. It seems like as the kids get older, um, the movement uh, piece gets reduced more mm-hmm. and more and more until it's just basically phased out. And that's really problematic because the the level of difficulty of the learning is getting scaled up while the movement's getting scaled down. Right. And so someone with ADHD you know, that, that level kindergarten, first grade, it's great. I wish they did that at every level right, right. and continued into, into middle school and high school. Um, because I think it would really, you'd see a lot, a lot of differences in terms of the results. Yeah. And they're you know? doing mindset stuff. I'm like hoping, yeah, is this mindfulness just the individual is, yeah. teachers or is this like the standard? I think mindfulness amazing. is definitely, ta- um, you know, being increased in its use, which is great. John, my partner is really, really big into mindfulness. He's really good at that kind of stuff. Um, so we, we use that in our groups. So we run young, uh, groups for young guys as well. Uh, we run a group. It's, it's seasonal six-week group uh, called Mental Fitness, hmm. and it's grades four and five as one group, grades six through eight is another group. Um, and so each week has a different component to it. Um, one of the components is mindfulness. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. And I saw that you have, um, what was it, sports psychology as one of your, so that must come in handy with, with young men and the coaching and and things like that. So do you use a lot of sports analogies? Yeah, yeah, sports analogy. Um, we work with some athletes, especially John does work with athletes. I've worked with some athletes as well in terms of uh, the the mindfulness piece of, of competition or the, the mental toughness side of competition for sure. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'd go as far as to say we we are sports psychologists because we're not. Right. Um, but we use some some aspects of sports psychology in our work for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm in obviously little kid land. So what if you notice some of these things in your kids, but they're not the right age range? What would you suggest? Um, you know, if you if you notice some things at like age five, uh, notice things in terms of how they talk about themselves, in terms of their behavior, in terms of symptoms for ADHD. So I would look at I would look at making the behavioral changes first, right? Um, what's what's leading to those kind of symptoms of distractibility or hyperactivity? Is it that they haven't eaten? Is it that they're tired? Is it um, that their sleep schedule is not really where it needs to be? Their routine isn't where it needs to be. Um, and that's why I'd look at first, uh, try to figure out where, where can we make some behavioral changes there? Because I think it's, again, it's usually less about the cognitive piece and more about just wanting to uh, change around their routines or their, uh, their behaviors a little bit. Yeah. But you think it's too early to seek out coaching and counseling At and five, things like that? <laughs> probably. Yeah, okay. I would say, you know, more towards eight, nine is, is usually. Um, if someone comes to work with me, you know, where their son is, you know, six, seven, that kind of thing, which has happened, most of the work tends to be with the parents, just okay. understanding how to, um, again, change the routines, change the behavior um, from within the household, and then also be able to, you know, uh, 
have rules and expect set clear rules and expectations uh and and you know do damage control from that side because usually that's that's if someone if a parent comes to me with a son who's six or seven usually it's because uh things from the parenting side can can be tinkered with a little bit um not to say they're not doing things perfectly but we can always be do things better so i think it's looking at the parent approach and how they're managing it from that side Okay. Yeah, just because the age, it's too difficult for for a young person that age to really grasp a lot of the concepts, which is why therapy at, at that young age tends to be much more play based. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would think. We'd have to. Ew. Yeah, because I feel like I have some friends where they're noticing something different with their kid, but they're mm-hmm. concerned if they bring him somewhere, it's going to be like something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So, so it's. But I, I understand, like a child psychologist, it seems more play based. So mm-hmm. it's not like, oh, we're going to the doctor because something's wrong with you. It's. I think they know how to how to do that. So yeah, and I think I, I would look, f- you know, for the clinician to be able to uh, portray that in a way that's not judgmental, so that the young person knows that this is not something that's wrong with you. We're being proactive, and and everyone can always uh, use some work on their skills to improve uh, everyday life, you know. So can we blame screen time for all the problems in the world? <laughs> it's tempting. It's tempting, isn't it? Is um, there a rise in I think screen time is a part of it. I think social media is another right. another big part of it. So I think those two things um absolutely are contributing to a lot of problems across the board. Uh I wouldn't say that they're, you know, it's a, it's a cure all if you were to take those things away. Um mm-hmm. but I do think that's a huge part of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean I always tell myself because I hate screens, I hate the phone, I hate my use of the phone, I'm mm-hmm. addicted, I know they mess with us so we are addicted, Yep. <laughs> not yep. to sound paranoid or anything, but my I justify my kids being on screens because when I take them off, they're not going nuts. Mm-hmm. Like I can tell there's some kids that they freak out if they have to transition from yeah, it yeah. or there's nothing else they want to do. Mm-hmm. You can't, com- they can't compete with that screen or mm-hmm. that video game. And it's just interesting because I, a lot of parents, probably kids my age are saying they're not going to be, they're not going to get a phone. They're not going to have video games. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of get sucked in because it's like social exile yep. and blah, blah. I don't know if you hear a lot of that. Or- no, that's, that's definitely a real problem. I think uh, you know, the solution would be collectively having parents all sort of agree to hold right. off on certain types of screens, screen use and certain and especially social media till, you know, high school or that kind of thing. Maybe age 13, 14. Um, but the problem is it's very hard to get a whole community on board with that. And so what ends up happening is the parents that do do that are the ones that are actually sort of ostracizing their kids because now um, everyone else is, is communicating through those, uh, you know, social media apps and those and, and through texting and through use of the phone. And the one that doesn't have it is now sort of marginalized and not able to connect with their peers in mm-hmm. a meaningful way, um, which might may actually be more harmful than the harm that would have been done by just having excessive screen use. So that that is a huge problem. I think what I try to work with parents on is first and foremost, modeling the right type of behavior, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of parents are Oops. telling their kids not to use a screen Oops. while they're just sitting here like glued to the screen. Who would do that? Oh my know, God. Right? Weird. It's weird how that happens. So <laughs> um, that's one thing is to, is to look at what we can make changes, uh, how we can make changes from an entire family perspective. That's one. I think the second one is not all screen use is cut from the same cloth, right? So some screen use is, is not as problematic as others. Like social media has its, has its own problems, right? That's its own kind of category. Um, the type of screen use that involves things like YouTube and even Facebook to a degree now when they, when they added the, uh, the video, uh, kind of, uh, tab where it's, it's the intentional removal of stop cues. So like, you know, things, there's no, there's no end to a video because a video ends and the next one is queued right up and it just sucks you into this kind of rabbit hole vortex of endless, um, um, consuming of of content Um, and it's by design they do that intentionally but that's really problematic because nothing is reining uh, a young person in and they just they kind of get it's very addictive and they get Mm -hmm. into this cycle where they just keep consuming content consuming content um, and it taps into the addictive cycle in the brain in a way that's very problematic and so those types of things need to be monitored pretty closely Whereas, you know, watching a movie um, through, through you know, through casting it to a TV or something like that with some friends or with siblings, not a huge problem. Um, playing video games isn't even a, a huge deal in my opinion. I think there's a limit to it. I think video games also have 
some really positive things that come with it, right? There's a huge social component to video games now because most of them interact with their friends through the platform, the video game platform. So it's a, it's a huge part of how they communicate and inter- interact and problem solve with each other. So I think that's a very good thing. You're making me feel better about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing. There's also strategy involved. There's hand, some hand-eye coordination. Uh, there's being able to set a goal and, and be competitive, which is not a bad thing, right? Being competitive and trying to reach a goal that you set for yourself, being determined. Those are all things we want to encourage. Um, I think parents tend to worry the most about violence. Um, whereas from my perspective, I think they're not necessarily, it's not, it's not a two way street. People who are, you know, prone to violence might be more likely to seek out violent video games, but playing a violent video game doesn't make a person violent. Right. So I think that's to me. Does it make them, what's the word, not immune, but like desensitized if they just see all these heads popping off and guts everywhere? No, because it's, it's I have a soul and I watched horror movies at age seven. That's that's what I mean. Right. So you have a good example, right? I think it's people, you know, understand fiction and they understand, uh, graphics and they understand things in context and i think when they're into it they're into accomplishing the goal behind the video game which is a good thing right it means they're striving towards something and they're determined to get to to the finish line get to their result that they're looking to get they're not intentionally trying to massacre people um you know they know the difference between reality and the context so okay that makes me feel a little bit better what about computer games because my husband like loves computer game that stresses me out that my kids are gonna be in front of the computer and not mm-hmm. leave <laughs> i think it depends on the game you yeah. know but i think a lot of those games are are um you know teach some good skills teach cognitive development things that help cognitive development my husband's um, saying thank you jotham <laughs> <laughs> uh like anything else it's within reason and i think that stuff is most most importantly, uh, I think it's it's best to put it after the hard work. I think that's the thing I stress with parents the most is have an order of operations, right? Have have those types of activities be the reward that you give them or that they give themselves after they've gotten some other things done, after they've helped out with something from a family perspective, after they do, they've done some some work around the house to help out or they've gotten their homework done or done some reading, something productive in a more balanced way, then they can reward themselves with that because that teaching them that order of operations, putting the hard stuff first is mm. like the number one thing Eat I encourage parents to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they have to be able to um, learn how to not procrastinate. And that's one of the huge problems we see at the high school and college level is procrastination has set in but for a long time at that point. They're not able to to reverse the order, right? They put the, um, the fun, entertaining stuff first um, because it's an emotional way to escape some of the, the – the fear and anxiety and stress that they experience from the things that they know they want to get done but don't know how to or feel self-conscious about. And that's a pattern that usually lasts for quite a long time, if not into their adulthood. Um, so establishing that order of operations is really important. You know what helped me is um, – I don't know exactly where I heard it, but do B-minus work. <laughs> like that gets me going like because I think there's people are trying to be perfect all the time yeah. and so they never get started. I'm like, I can do B minus work. And yeah, then- sort of a great is good, done is better sort yeah. of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think um, parents are very driven these days and I think uh, that is part of the problem is that there some a lot of these kids have schedules that are – way too packed in my opinion um mm. and i think that actually leads to some of the mental health issues because it's like it's it's like taking an adult who works seven days a week and then giving them one day off and asking them to just relax that's very hard to do right for people that work a lot of hours you need more than one day off to really decompress and, and be able to relax and that's what's happening with a lot of young kids they have you know 10 14 days in a row of, of days packed with different things that responsibilities and, and expectations and then when they have downtime, they cannot handle it. You know, it's mm. it, they get very, very stressed out from being bored. And that's not because they hate boredom. It's because they're not used to it. They don't really know how to be bored as much as, mm. as they need to be. Um, they don't know how to be alone with their own thoughts and their own daydreaming and their own creativity. It's foreign to them, which makes it uncomfortable, which is why they tend to react very poorly to it. So I think, you know, reconditioning a lot of young people to be able to be bored is a very important uh, part of the solution, in my opinion. I hear you. I mean, when I was a, I'm still a stay-at-home mom, but my kids were little, I just couldn't be at home. Mm-hmm. I just always wanted to be out. Like I couldn't sit with my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sit with my house. So I'd go, go, okay, we got to do this and then we got to go here. But like I realized they're happy at home sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I got, after I started to declutter and started to enjoy my home more yep. and I could sit with my thoughts a little bit more. So it's really interesting how, you know, they 
they don't need to be busy. Yeah. You know, just because mom wants to be on the go and yep. see her friends doesn't mean that's necessarily what's best for the kids. Absolutely. So it's, it's interesting to come up with a balance. So you're really, it sounds like based from your architecture um, background, you're really into the whole patient experience. Mm-hmm. Like the way your office is set up. This This was interesting. So you even care about like the parking situation and like how people can get to your office and like, because if the parking situation is not good, if the map is confusing, that adds to the anxiety. And it mm-hmm. made me realize about my clients <laughs> because I'm very casual. So they're like, so what to expect? Mm-hmm. Like what's going to, what I'm just like, oh, I just come over. To, like I don't give them that many details mm-hmm. because it's, it's a big deal for me to come into someone's house. Yeah. But because I'm so casual, I kind of forget that. Mm-hmm. So it made me realize like maybe my best practices, I could step it up a little bit and give more specifics on what to expect. Mm-hmm. So um, speak more to that of how important the... The environment is to you. Yeah, so two things kind of come to mind: the the office experience and then the the home uh, dynamic. So I'll, I'll get into both a little bit. From from the office perspective, you know, I think we try to we obviously try to design our offices that are uh, in a way that's conducive to the therapeutic process for both clinicians and clients. Um, so that involves you know the way we um, design the inside. Uh, I think specifically, like we're not interior designers, so it's not, I went in, it's very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And we do it on a budget. You know, we're not dropping a hundred thousand dollars on our office space. We don't have that kind of money to be able to spend as most therapists don't have that kind of money to spend. Um, so we do it on a budget, but we do it effectively in a way that's very, you know, very calming and very relaxing. I think the number one thing we look to do is we look to find an office space that has, uh, a common area, a layout that is uh, conducive to multiple options or multiple zones. So I think most therapy spaces tend to be, you know, three to six offices and this tiny packed waiting room that's got like six chairs that all face each other and bright fluorescent lights. And it's very awkward and it's just not very calming to the people coming in. And these are people who are coming in to really you know, go into some places within themselves that are not easy to go to. So they're already under stress as it is. Um, if you put them in a space that is only going to, um, you know, heighten that stress, that's not good for them. It's not good for uh, a clinician who's trying to run a business because the experience isn't going to be good. And it's not good for the clients because they're not going to get the results they're looking for. So we try to look for a space that where the common area space at least uh, is at least at the same square footage, if hopefully more than the actual office square footage, because what that allows us to do is we we out sort of lay out different zones for people that have a different feel. You know, we'll have one area that's kind of like a living room with a little couch, and then we'll have some other chairs that are a little bit more standard waiting room feel. And then we'll have, you know, a high top table with bar stools where people can you know, put their laptop on and drink coffee. And there's, you know, a sign with the Wi-Fi and things like that. And then we have kind of nooks and corners where people, if they want to be left alone or if they're kind of shy, they can tuck themselves in and just be to themselves and be comfortable. And I think giving that choice and those options to people when they come in um, consciously and unconsciously really helps the experience for them, helps them feel like we care. Whether they consciously make connection with that or not, Mm. that's the vibe that they get. So that's part of it. You know, obviously lighting and furniture and color use and that kind of thing plays a role too. Um, we tend to not use fluorescent lights. We tend to use area lights, uh, fluorescent lights. You know, uh, we don't, you know, we're not huge proponents of those. We tend to think they create headaches and it's just kind of like sterile. Um, so we tend to stay away from that. The parking situation, that's, that sort of, um, has to do with a concept called wayfinding, which is a, an architectural concept about, uh, understanding how people's brains, you know, have um, different neurons that that fire. Um, uh, They're called place neurons. So it's actually where they they map out the space that they've uh, been to uh, and how to get back to the to the front. So a lot of it's about signage and directionality and understanding where things lie in in um, in, in the overall orientation with respect to each other. So what we try to do when it comes to, to wayfinding is just be more uh, – give a better explanation ahead of time, right? Instead of leaving clients to just like – drive there, sit in traffic, and then have to find our unit, you know, we'll send them a pretty accurate description of, of where to enter the parking lot, what the parking situation is like, um, how to find our unit, with it, including a picture I send to new clients, you know, with an arrow pointing to our specific door, because it can sometimes be tough to find. Wow. And that's like a little thing, but I think it makes a big difference, because if they're coming in for a first session, that first session is usually the most nerve-wracking for people when it comes to they meet, they're meeting a therapist for the first time. I'm sure they're conflicted about what to open up about or what the, how the process is going to go. If you now make that confusing when it comes to a, a parking and how do I find this unit perspective, that's just going to really add to the to the negative outcome. So we try to um, reduce as much of that uh, kind of cognitive load as we can for people. 
Um, so that's from the the architectural wayfinding side, and then from the the home environment side, you know, I think it's always interesting to to see, um, you know, what people do with their space and how it overlaps with their mental health. I think, mm-hmm. you know, as we've talked about in the past, I've done a lot of work with hoarding. I know you do a great, a great amount of work with organizational stuff, which is fantastic, and those are very interrelated in different ways. But I think it also, um, I think it's sort of a spectrum. I think with other mental health issues, the home environment definitely plays a, a, an active variable role in either supporting the recovery from that or supporting uh, the, the continuity of, of bad mental health uh, issues and habits. Specifically with young guys in depression, we've noticed a big, uh, a big aspect of their bedrooms playing a huge role. Um, they tend to let things go, uh, both from a, a cluttered perspective and from a cleanliness perspective. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of reinforces the depression, especially, um, and sometimes anxiety as well, right? As I'm sure you've seen with clients, you know, if their space is cluttered, um, some people deal, deal well with a little bit of clutter and actually helps them stay in a zone, but most people don't do well with clutter and it tends to make them a little bit more apprehensive and more anxious. Um, so we try to do home visits from time to time oh. um, with, with families. I think that's great from a family dynamic perspective. My background um, before I started my own business was working for a nonprofit in Medford where I did a lot of in-home, short-term in-home intensive family therapy. Um, and so that home visit background for me I always thought was very valuable. I try to throw that in from time to time because I think you hmm. can really glean a lot from seeing the family dynamic in the home and seeing how their space is organized and structured and laid out and everything. Um, and then, you know, from an individual guy's perspective, I think their bedrooms are often uh, an uh, sort of a uh, an entryway into working on their um, their mental health. You know, we mm. use we use the bedroom as a way to kind of behaviorally change things for them because a lot of times uh, it's affecting their sleep negatively or it's reinforcing their depression and things like that. So the home environment is extremely important when it comes to mental health issues. So do you think that the parents and the kids are working together? Because sometimes I come in and help the kid when it's just too much or I'll do it without the kid being there. Um, like what are you noticing is tend to happen with the room? Like get out of my room, mom. Or is it like, okay, mom, let's do this together. I think a lot or of dad, get, out of, sorry. get out of my room. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, get out of my room, dad. mom or dad or both, right? That definitely tends to happen because of the age. But I also think a lot of parents struggle. Um, parents are, are not often not designers and they're not organizational specialists, which is why I think what you do is so important because mm-hmm. I think they – Lots of people don't have those skills. They don't know how to do it. Or maybe they're eager to learn or maybe they don't want to learn. They just want someone to do it for them right. because they just know it's not – they've accepted that's not their strength, which is fine too. Um, but I think a lot of people, more people than we know, are struggling with those kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Um, especially, People's eyes light up when I say what I do. And absolutely. I'm in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something that's really needed. I think it happens behind closed doors. People are very closed off, you know, pun intended about, about that kind of stuff, about letting people in um, for fear of judgment and things like that. But it's a huge – it's a positive intervention when it comes to, uh, you know, focus and mental health issues and happiness and everything. Uh, I think a lot of times people are resistant to doing it, but once they do it, they really notice a difference. So, yeah. yeah I mean, my kids' rooms aren't super tidy, but like they don't have a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to like today, I was, I'm, it's hard for me to get in the habit of like keep having them do things themselves. They're like, mom, you know, you got to let me do it. I'm like, and um, so I wrote like a list today, but mm-hmm. it's, basically what they have to do is shut their drawers and make their bed. Yeah. <laughs> like there's just not yeah. a lot of stuff. So yep. I think, you know, those are the type of things parents can do to set their um, kids up for success. Like it's easier to maintain a room like that, but it's, it's, it's definitely a big problem. Um, and it's a good thing that you do home visits and I, and I help out as well. We could talk forever, but I want to um, maybe start to end on what are some examples of things like someone you've seen come in and like what results like what are some sort of um, examples of success stories? Yeah, so I think it depends on on the you know presenting problem that they're kind of coming in with. Uh, you know, the goal of the work. I think if it's depression, you know, obviously you're looking to reduce the symptoms uh, from something that's you know if someone comes in they're depressed on a level of eight or nine out of ten. You know, that's not good. It means they they sometimes might be close to having some suicidal thoughts. They might be just unable to get up out of bed, mm. unable to, uh, you know, usually their eating habits are not good and their appetite is gone. There's no motivation, no purpose. So uh, what we typically do with depression is um, we use the cognitive behavioral approach, but we start with behavioral activation because I think if you try to go too quickly into some of the cognitive changes that you're trying to get with a client before their depressive symptoms have been reduced, it's it's very much mm. difficult for them to really 
you know, latch on to what you're saying or, or believe any of those different ways of possibly thinking. They're not there yet. They're yeah. not there yet, right? So we use behavioral activation off the bat because we've noticed that that reduces the symptoms at least enough for them to grasp the, the cognitive changes and the options from a cognitive perspective um, on how to think a little bit differently about the, about their everyday life and about themselves. And then we kind of uh, ping pong back and forth. You know, we use behavioral changes in the beginning, you know, obviously exercise, nutrition, sleep habits, cleanliness and organization around the home, things like that. Uh, setting goals around, you know, professional goals or social interaction, getting out of the house, things like that. That reduces their symptoms so that we can then look at different types of cognitive distortions that are probably getting in their way and probably leading to a lot of the depressive symptoms. You know, usually black and white thinking, self-labeling, catastrophizing situations, stuff like that. And we work on how to uh, reframe cognitively a little bit. And then we go back to the behavioral side and look to take the next step uh, towards goals that they want to accomplish in their life. Hmm. Because that kind of, again, stepping up and moving forward in their life is what helps them really start to see I am worthwhile. I don't have to. I don't have to look at myself through this distorted lens. I, I bring something to the table, um, and that to me is is the greatest thing to see. We've had a lot of clients that have gone from you know eight or nine or ten on the scale of one to ten, with ten being the worst of depressive symptoms, all the way down to to two. You know, mm. I think one is pretty tough. I think most people know that you know one is maybe not possible in life. You're never going to be perfectly happy every day of no. your life, right? So two is kind of what we shoot for. And, and you know, we get a lot of clients with that. Uh, same with anxiety. You know, it's about reducing symptoms and allowing people um, to, you know, enjoy their everyday life activities without being sort of a prisoner of their own mental health issues. Mm. With anxiety, it's a little bit different because it's, it's much more from the exposure side. So we're trying to really expose them in a controlled, gradual way to that which causes their anxiety and they build up a tolerance to those things and they build up a sense of evidence uh, behind not having to think the way they used to think. Um, they mm -hmm. get proof that, hey, when I actually push through and do these things, the results are pretty good and I actually feel pretty proud of myself. And that evidence is what allows them to keep kind of moving forward a little bit at a time. Um, so that's from the anxiety perspective. And then from from more of the ADHD, um, you know, we're looking to minimize the symptoms as much as possible while increasing the level of acceptance. Uh, uh, with you know how their brain works so that they like who they are, they like how their brain works. They don't think it's a deficit. They think it's an advantage. My friend, um, I asked, I was asking some friends what questions you would have for you. And um, one of them was, what activities do you recommend for people with ADHD? Like karate, anything physical? Really anything physical. Yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. physical um, that's just going to get their heart rate up. Um, you know, wrestling with family members even. I mean, I have uh, a young guy I work with who's about nine or 10. And, you know, him is one of our things that we did off the bat, which is having him and his dad just wrestle around every morning. And that even that makes a huge difference. Right. Again, we're, you're trying to do things, especially before any type of learning or any kind of, uh, you know, context when they have to focus, priming them with any kind of physical activity is really key. Yeah. Well, I notice when I'm cranky and it's just me and the kids, I'll just run around the house like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll call yeah. it crazy or wild time. And yep. I, feel, I actually feel better. Like totally. when I'm running around screaming like we're pushing each other. It, it's I wouldn't put a camera on. It looks like well, psychos. But. You know what's great about that is that what you're doing is you're sort of putting that stuff on cue. You're allowing it instead of sort of telling them not to do it. You're, right. you're sort of saying, hey, it's going to happen. I'm welcoming it. I'm encouraging oh, yeah. it. Get it's it a all free out for all. Now. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a free for all. Which I think, you know, interestingly enough, from a parenting perspective, I think makes kids less likely to want to do the things that they think, you know, kids want to do what they think parents don't want them to do, right? So oh, if yeah. you welcome that kind of stuff, um, they're they're going to do it with you and then they're going to be less likely to be tempted to go do it when they think they're not supposed to because yeah. you've given them the floor to just go do it. There you go. Yeah. Support, support on that. Yeah. Um, this has been amazing. And the sh I don't mention this, but the – the show is lighting up with the Declutterista, and my point is to bring on guests that make people's lives lighter mm -hmm. and better, and you are a true example of this. I'm sure parents are, like, obsessed with you. <laughs> I mean, to take – this has got to be so stressful. So you are the epitome of the title, Lighten Up with the Declutterista. So how can people – I'm hoping people can actually book an appointment with you. It sounds like it's a hot, it's hot, it's hard, but you have more people working with you, so that's good. Yeah, so we're we're a little bit busy right now, but we've just um, again hired a third and fourth employee that can come on in uh, you know early November. Um, okay. So that's going to definitely expand uh, what we can offer to people. Um, but we have some availability uh, in in Newton, a little bit less in Lexington right now, but that will change in early November. Okay. Um, and then we have uh, the six week seasonal group is about to end for the fall, but we have those groups happening 
thing in the winter. They start at the end of January. The winter, people need stuff. Yep, yep. yep. So it's going to be the last, I think the last week of January is when it starts. And we have those at, at both our Newton and Lexington locations for grades four through five and then grades six through eight. Um, so they can go to our websites, www.riserandtread.com, uh, R-I-S-E-R and T-R-E-A-D. Yeah, uh, we need that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah. on the show. I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Well, thank you for having me, Becky. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah.